This is the Judaism from Within podcast. I'm Simi Lerner. We're continuing our discussion on chukim, statutes, those laws that strike us as bizarre, disconnected from morality or disconnected from human experience and living, especially in the modern world where we are so disconnected from ritual and symbolism. But for Rav Hirsch, chukim play a part in the overall structure and purpose of Judaism, fulfilling one of the three fundamental tenets or purposes of Judaism. Love, justice, and the education towards love and justice, what he develops in his 19 letters as a general philosophy of Judaism. And Chukim fit right in line with that, but under the category of justice. So unlike other thinkers who look at Chukim as being almost irrational or disconnected from reality, Rav Hirsch sees them as fitting into a framework that makes sense, that makes sense of what God wants of us in this world, but there are certain premises we don't have access to. And what Rav Hirsch tries to do in the explanation of Chukim is to try and ascertain what are those other principles. Of course, it's speculative, but based off its probability and its uh, how much we find it convincing, you adopt it or don't adopt it. This isn't a, uh, a dictatorial cry out of how things truly are, it's suggestive. That's the nature of Tami HaMitzvahs. So with that introduction, we discussed Kalayim last week, but let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's part two of Kalayim. What's a good example of mixing? Kalayim means mixing with certain things Jewish people don't mix, be it threads within certain clothes or um, uh, animals plowing and working together and also food that we eat, from the agricultural world to milk and meat. And Rav Hirsch plays this on a part in terms of its distance from the, hu- distance from the human personality. You have uh, the agriculture, the land, you have the labor, the dress, what we actually wear, and lastly, what we actually eat. I'm gonna, in today's discussion, really take us to the last stage, what we eat, mixing milk and meat. And the reason for choosing this as an example to develop is because it's the one that saturates our experience as religious people. Be it you secular or be you religious, you know there are certain things that are part of your experience in the world that inform how you relate to things and relate to people. There are certain symbols and rituals that we do from a shake of a hand to a kiss on the cheek, and these give over certain important principles that are important to that society. When it comes to milk and meat, Any religious person will tell you, the thing you know before you know anything in a religious framework is certain things are milky, certain things are meaty. And when Rav Hirsch explains this as being a, uh, almost like a, um, a reminder that goes throughout our lives, that allows the spiritual to spread itself through our daily life in our home, it only occurred to me afterwards how true that was. Something so mundane as preparing food in the kitchen becomes like punctuated with milk, meat, this spoon, that spoon, meaning the idea of separation and the idea of each thing has its domain is being imprinted at a very early age in a very fundamental way. And if we draw ourselves back to the original meaning of kalayim, to keep things separate, to hold back, and how that it was originally given in the context of to love your neighbor like yourself. And Rav Hirsch's framework for Kalayim was that when a person has reached the fullest level of the human potential, he then looks back at nature and sees that the frameworks that nature express, when we express a moral framework, we are we are doing the same. We are fitting in line with the natural world, in a sense. Yes, the natural world does it without choosing, and we do it with choosing, but to remind us, almost like a an acceptance of humility is that you are just fitting yourself in line. And when it comes to that importance of a framework, 
which is what Judaism is, a child gets developed in that direction from a very early age. And that's with the whole milk-meat, parav basari. And children know this, and children accept this, and children allow it to permeate how they talk in the kitchen. And it's very interesting how that's such an important principle in early education. In early education for a Jewish child, they know certain things are allowed and certain things are not allowed. And in my own experience, this I see clearly with my children, the milk, the meat, it's something that every child knows. So that's a good place to begin. Like, what is what ideas are being expressed on a symbolic level that when we appreciate them, the separation of milk and meat will be internalized? So when it comes to milk and meat, it's also unique. It's not just the eating it, it's the preparing it, it's the gaining benefit from it, which means it permeates different areas of our experience. And Rafesh points out that eating, it's not going to be under the same category of, uh, how you say, like, uh, non-kosher animals, where you could envision an aspect of the animal that would be psychologically impactful on you. Uh, for example, the uh, animals that express cruelty, and not obviously in an intentional way, but birds of prey, uh, predators. We don't eat the more docile animals we do eat. So you could create a moral narrative based off that of consuming the flesh of such an animal, and that being problematic on a religious level. But when it comes to milk and meat, you have two permitted things. Milk is permitted and so is meat. But Rathersh says this is the exact point where finer moral refinement takes place. A person who within the area of that which is permitted, they let themselves go. You might have this idea that on some level that's okay because I'm eating something kosher. No, it's the very area where for all intents and purposes you're succeeding, you're eating what is kosher, but that's the area where danger lies because you are blinded to overconsumption or other forms of, you know, moral failings. So this is an area where two permitted things, a point where you are, perhaps your guard is down, a powerful symbolic expression is given to the Jewish people. So let's develop it. So you have milk and you have meat. Rav Hirsch's vision of the world splits the world in on a hierarchy of development. You have the plant life, which basically gives you reproduction of energy. That makes sense, that's what plants do. But on a development, you can look at it as a uh, more an evolutionary process, that develops into movement with animals. So you have a so you have the vegetative, which is expressed through reproduction and uh, the consumption of energy. An animal takes that a stage higher. The animal's movement is dictated by the more base desires, or the most base instincts. So the, the plant produces and consumes uh, energy in a purely passive way. What does an animal do? Based off that vegetative expression which it has, which we all have, it moves. Meaning it will move based off its more base instincts, the desire for uh, reproduction or the desire for food. That's what motivates an animal's movement. So that's the natural world. It's There's this passive vegetative expression, which is a plant goes about through pollination and uh, photosynthesis. An animal has that. You could perhaps call that the brainstem or the um, amygdala, the more base part of the brain. And then it sort of moves up in the motor cortex, where it moves, where it allows that more base instinct to determine its movement to accomplish that more base instinct. So you have the vegetative expression of the natural world and you have the animal expression of the natural world. Now this is why animals move. Animals move based off their instincts. But then you come to the human being. What is the human being called upon to do? The human being is called upon to not allow its most base instincts to determine its movement. That's what we call the neshama. That's what we call the spirit. That's what we call the image of God, that we are able to experience these more base inclinations. 
and not allow it to determine our movement. That's what we call morality. That's what we call living an ethical life. That's what we call living in line with a purpose that at times will go against our more base instincts. That is what a human being is called upon to do. The religious calling is to take your neshama, to take your, in the context of our little brain description, you have the prefrontal cortex, which is that which sits above the motor cortex, which sits above the brainstem. What you are called upon as a human being is to not allow those two to be mixed, to have a distinct separation between the two. That is the... So if we take the message and we draw back into our conversation the symbolic expression that gives rise to these two, you have meat and milk. Milk, which is produced, which is comes about through the relationship of reproduction and the consumption of energy, that's, what a, that's where a milk comes about through the relationship between the young and their mother. And it is that which feeds the next generation. So within the experience of a human being, milk gives rise to this vegetative expression in the sense that it's related to both reproduction and consumption. But it also comes about naturally. It comes about through no decision, no movement is needed. It comes about purely from being within the process of reproduction and consumption. That is the vegetative side. And meat, well, that's the animal side. That is the movement side, the movement of the animal, which is basically dictated by its more based instincts. And as a human, as a Jew, who are asked to have that awareness at the forefront of our mind of the importance of that separation, we don't mix these. But not only we don't mix these, we don't gain benefit from its mixture. We don't involve ourselves in benefiting from the relationship between these two concepts. So that's milk and meat. So just if we recap, you have the vegetative expression and you have the animal expression. The vegetative expression is the passive, the reproduction of a plant, the consumption of enemy, the photosynthesis, the pollination. That in an animal is the desire for reproduction and the consumption of food. But an animal's movement, which we now shift to the animal's actual active movement in the world, what dictates where it goes is based off those more base passive, passive desires. For a human, on the other hand, your movement should not be dictated by a more base instinct. Your movement should be dictated by a higher principle. A higher principle, a divine principle, a moral principle, a purpose should determine your movement, and thereby not to mix the two. So. That's Basavachalav. Thank you for listening as always and have a wonderful week. 